Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, you might have noticed this episode was released a little bit late. I got sick over the holidays and I lost my voice, so I couldn't record. I'm better now, but my voice still isn't 100%, so please bear with me. Before we get into this case, I want to wish all of you a happy, safe, and healthy new year. I hope 2023 brings all good things. Now, without further delay, let's get into today's case. Some might say New Orleans native Jill Coit collected husbands as a hobby. Between 1961 and 1992, she was married 11 times to nine different men. Some of these marriages were acts of bigamy. Jill married a handful of men while she was still legally wed to others. On the outside, it could appear that she was obsessed with companionship, but a deeper look at Jill's life reveals a twisted, manipulative side not a woman intent on finding true love. Her tendency to swap out husbands like designer shoes would lead one man to his death. 52-year-old Jerry Boggs was a lifelong bachelor until he fell into Jill's trap. Although she was suspected of being involved in the death of a previous husband, it was Jerry's murder that led detectives straight to Jill's doorstep. Soon, they'd learn about the tangled web she spun as a serial bigamist turned murderous and how she earned the ominous nickname, Colorado's Black Widow. This is Jamie and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case involving victim Jerry Boggs. This case takes us to several locations in the U.S. Jill Coit had husbands in Louisiana, Texas, California, Indiana, and Colorado. In a time before electronic marriage records were widely available, 
it was likely easier for Jill to get away with bigamy. 52-year-old Jerry Boggs lived in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. The Northwest Colorado resort town is about a three-hour drive from Denver, making Steamboat Springs an appealing rural escape filled with hiking trails, hot springs, scenic views, and plenty of ski resorts. The town's Chamber of Commerce predicts more than 500,000 tourists pass through each year, making tourism its predominant industry. Jill Coit would come to call Steamboat Springs her home, after a string of failed marriages. Jill Coit was born Jill Lonita Billiot in Lafitte, Louisiana on June 11th. The year of her birth is debated, either 1943 or 1944, because she lied so frequently about her age. Jill would later say to the record searchlight, I go anywhere from 35 to 50. Jill grew up in New Orleans and experienced a fairly normal childhood while her father, Henry, worked as a steamboat captain, her mother, Juanita, stayed home to care for Jill and her younger brother, Mark. According to the record searchlight, the Billiot family is part American Indian and descends from the Homa tribe native to Louisiana. In the spring of 1961, during her sophomore year in high school, Jill left home. She moved in with her grandmother in North Manchester, Indiana, where she began dating 18-year-old apprentice bricklayer Larry Enan. The couple eloped in July of 1961, but were married for less than a year. After the divorce, Jill moved back to Louisiana to finish out high school. At age 21, she enrolled in Northwestern State University, where she met fellow student Stephen Moore. They were married in May of 1964 and soon welcomed a baby boy, Seth. Instead of bringing the couple closer together, Seth's birth seemed to steer Jill and Stephen toward conflict. They filed for divorce in 1966, but remained legally married for a year. With her marriage on its last leg, Jill grew more independent. While bar hopping with friends in the French Quarter one night, she met 36-year-old William Coit Jr., a Texan vacationing in New Orleans. Jill quickly grew infatuated with the prominent engineer who happened to belong to an affluent Houston family. In January of 1966, Jill moved to Texas and married the new man in her life. William accepted Jill's past and adopted her son, Seth. At the time, William had no idea that Jill's divorce hadn't been finalized. By November of that year, Jill gave birth to William's son, William Andrew. The divorce from Stephen was finally completed in March of 1967. A year later, William and Jill welcomed their second son together, William Clark Coit III. The Coits seemed like a happy family, and William's wealth meant that they lived very comfortably. They owned several properties, and Jill seemed to have the life that most only dream of. Despite her idyllic lifestyle with William, Jill had wandering eyes. As reported by the Evansville Courier, friends said William traveled for work frequently, and in his absence, Jill had affairs. William eventually found out and accused Jill of only marrying him for his money. Tensions increased from there, and Jill filed for divorce from William in early March of 1972, requesting full custody of the three children. Less than three weeks later, on March 28th, 
42-year-old William Clark Coit Jr. was found dead in a hallway of the family's Houston home. He'd been shot three times with a 22 caliber rifle. Responding officers found no sign of forced entry and Jill immediately fell under suspicion. It was obvious this was a murder involving someone William knew well enough to invite inside of his home. At first, Jill avoided being questioned by checking herself into a psychiatric hospital. She was reportedly so distraught by William's death that she attempted suicide. Upon being released, Jill and the kids stayed with her parents in New Orleans. The state of Texas fought to extradite Jill so authorities could question her. But Jill hired a lawyer, Louis DeRosa, who delayed legal proceedings for extradition long enough to render the case inactive. Years down the line, Louis would become another one of Jill's husbands. Jill started over again in a new place, settling down in Orange, California. Although she remarried, Jill opted to keep the last name of her deceased husband, explaining to the record searchlight, this is the only marriage I ever count. I totally fell in love. I remain a coit and will always be a coit. But this wasn't about love, according to Jill's son, Seth. He told the Associated Press that his mother was living off the money inherited from her late husband, though Jill publicly denied it. And this is where Jill's story gets a little bizarre. As reported by the Abilene Reporter, the sociable divorcee befriended 90-year-old Bruce Johansson. The kind-hearted retiree took Jill under his wing. Some sources say he adopted her, while others claim that they were married. Regardless, when Bruce passed away in 1974, Jill inherited a sizable portion of his estate. The lawyer who handled the settlement was none other than Louis DeRosa, who'd helped Jill avoid extradition. In November of 1973, at age 30, Jill married Donald Charles Brody, a U.S. Marine major. Following the pattern of her previous marriages, the relationship was short-lived. They divorced in 1975. According to Oxygen, Jill claimed to be pregnant with Donald's baby and demanded child support in their divorce agreement. Months later, she told her ex-husband that she suffered a miscarriage but no proof exists that she was ever pregnant. Jill would pull this stunt several other times with future husbands. After the split, Jill moved back to Indiana where she had extended family. Her next marriage was with her longtime attorney, Louis DeRosa. Like Jill's other relationships, her affections didn't last. While Jill was still married to Louis, she allegedly married two other men, divorced Louis, and then remarried him. Some or all of those marriages stood on really shaky legal footing. The other two husbands were Eldon Metzger and Carl Steely. Eldon was an insurance salesman and auctioneer who married Jill in March of 1978. There is no record of their divorce. Jill met Carl Steely through her sons. They attended a military school in Culver, Indiana, where Carl was headmaster. The two got married in January of 1983, though Jill's divorce from Lewis wasn't legally finalized until July of 1985, making her marriage to Carl in 1983 illegal. Jill and Carl did go on to legally marry. It would be Jill's longest relationship, 
whether you count the years their marriage was official or not. Carl told the Houston Chronicle they were married for nine years, living together for seven of them. In 1990, while traveling through Steamboat Springs, Colorado, Jill convinced Carl to purchase the Oak Springs bed and breakfast. She told him it was a great retirement investment, and he agreed, though he would never reap the benefits. Jill was already on to the next man, hardware store owner Jerry Boggs. Gerald Boggs was born in 1941 in Steamboat Springs. His family's business, Boggs Hardware, was considered a local staple since it opened in 1939. Jerry had the opportunity to inherit ownership, but first, he needed to determine his place in the world. After high school, he studied at the University of Colorado before enrolling in a military intelligence school. He served in Vietnam from 1965 to 1967. Jerry decided to return to Steamboat Springs following his time in the military. While working in the family store, he pursued pilot classes and took up hobbies like nature photography. His life was pretty peaceful until he became acquainted with Jill Coit. They met while Jill and her sons were doing repairs on the B&B. She attempted to marry Jerry in April of 1991 while still married to Carl. In December of 1991, Jill officially filed for divorce from Carl. Disturbingly, he alleged that Jill had made two separate attempts on his life toward the end of their marriage. As reported by the South Bend Tribune, Carl suspected Jill poisoned his coffee one morning, causing him to black out at work. On another occasion, Carl was riding a bike through town when a garbage truck attempted to run him over. Carl had no proof that Jill was directly involved, so she was never charged. He told the South Bend Tribune that before leaving him, Jill took his family inheritance, their furniture, and all the money in their joint checking account. With Carl out of the way, Jill's focus was now on the main subject of this case, Jerry Boggs. She told the record searchlight she married Jerry for his intellect, adding, Steamboat Springs doesn't have that many eligible people who are intelligent. Most of the men here are ski bums. For whatever reason, after they got married, Jill quickly decided she and Jerry weren't compatible. In fact, she came to this conclusion while they were on their honeymoon. Jill shared with the record searchlight, two weeks after we were married, he goes to Belize scuba diving on our honeymoon without me. He told me he couldn't spend two weeks in a confined area with one person. He had never been married and probably should have never gotten married. Jill went on to say that she was a people person and Jerry was the polar opposite. He believed the world was against him. Jill dealt with the disconnect in her marriage by putting distance between them. She enrolled in classes at the University of Northern Colorado, spending most of her time in Greeley and visiting Jerry only on weekends. She could tolerate her new husband, but only in small doses. In December of 1991, Jill learned that she was still legally married to Carl. After a heated argument with Jerry, she decided to annul their marriage after being married only a few months. About a year later, Jerry Boggs would be dead. 
after the annulment was granted, Jill sued Jerry to release a $100,000 lien on the deed of trust for the bed and breakfast. At that point, the business was worth $1 million. A few months later, Jerry filed a countersuit in which he accused Jill of fraud for falsely claiming to be pregnant with his child. As reported by the Chicago Tribune, in a deposition for the civil case, Jerry claimed he married Jill because he thought she was pregnant with his child. Testimony from Jill's friends and family confirmed that she'd been telling people their child would be born that winter. In actuality, Jill had undergone a partial hysterectomy when she was younger. That surgery, in combination with her age of 47, meant that she couldn't conceive. Jerry's countersuit definitely had merit, and Jill knew it. Around the time the annulment was granted, Jill met a new love interest. 48-year-old telephone repairman Michael Backus. They dated briefly, and though they were rumored to have tied the knot, there were no records proving it. Some sources say that Michael was married and his affair with Jill ended the marriage. In February of 1992, Jill entered her 10th and final marriage. Roy Carroll, a 68-year-old retired U.S. Navy officer, married Jill in Las Vegas. It was another short-lived entanglement, though according to legal records, they never filed for divorce. By December of that year, Michael Backus and Jill were living together in Greeley, Colorado. If Jill's story continued with more marriages, it's likely there would have been even more divorces. Her pattern was broken by having Michael in her life. It wasn't that she was finally ready to settle down and commit to someone. In Michael, she found someone who could be manipulated more than anyone before him. Random thought, but why does laundry detergent come in these massive containers? They're so big and heavy and they take up way too much space. Not to mention they're filled with 90% water. Doesn't the washing machine already have water in it? It feels like I'm just wasting storage space, compromising my home's aesthetic and using unnecessary plastic. 91% of laundry detergent containers don't even get recycled, leaving 700 million detergent jugs in our landfills every year. But it's not like you can just stop doing laundry. So here's what I did. I switched to EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze has these really cool laundry detergent eco sheets that look like dryer sheets, but they aren't. They dissolve 100% in any wash cycle, hot or cold. No more worrying about a gooey mess from measuring your detergent or having these huge, ugly containers laying around. Just toss them in and start your wash cycle. It's that easy. EarthBreeze has completely changed the game. Their packaging is compact, biodegradable, and plastic-free. Their eco-sheets are also vegan, cruelty-free, and dermatologically tested and safe for sensitive skin. EarthBreeze offers flexible subscriptions that can be adjusted, paused, or canceled by you at any time without penalty. With their Buy One, Give 10 initiative, each purchase donates 10 loads of detergent to a charitable cause of your choice. A whopping 30 million loads have already been donated. It's incredible to think that these little sheets have turned doing laundry into an act of kindness. 
And most importantly, you still get a powerful clean for your clothes. I love how much easier it is to just throw an eco sheet instead of worrying about making a mess from pouring out liquid detergent. As a mom and a business owner, it's so important to me that I save time and energy wherever I can. I'm telling you this, but you won't really know until you try it. And if you don't like it, Earth Breeze will give you a full refund. You don't even have to send it back. They're confident you'll love it as much as I do. Now's the time to try Earth Breeze because right now my listeners can subscribe and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash murderish to get started. That's earthbreeze.com slash murderish for 40% off. earthbreeze.com slash murderish. I know I'm not the only one who finds myself going down an internet rabbit hole searching for answers every time I experience symptoms and can't seem to pinpoint where they're coming from. It seems like when you have a headache paired with nasal congestion, you can simply have a common cold or you could be developing some life-threatening disease. I almost always end up making myself feel worse because I find endless threads full of questionable advice from so-called experts on TikTok who all seem to be giving contradictory information. So not only do I not feel good, but now I'm confused and worried too. There are better ways to get the answers you want and the care you deserve from trusted professionals, not random people on the internet. ZocDoc helps you find doctors and medical professionals that specialize in the care you need and deliver the type of experience you want. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. When you're not feeling your best and just trying to hold it together, finding great care shouldn't take up all your energy. And that's where ZocDoc comes in. Using the free app that millions of users rely on, you can find the right doctor that meets your needs and fits your schedule. Book an appointment with a few taps in their app and start feeling better faster with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com murderish and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com murderish. ZocDoc.com murderish. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On October 22, 1993, Jerry Boggs didn't show up to work at the family hardware store. His brother Doug grew anxious and decided to check on him at home. That afternoon, Doug found Jerry lying in a pool of blood in his kitchen. He'd been fatally shot in the head and back. An autopsy revealed that he'd also been severely beaten. There were also mysterious marks on his face, the cause of which wouldn't be revealed until some time later. While Jerry's family struggled to understand why he'd been killed so callously, investigators actively began their search for answers. Detectives started by questioning Jerry's family and neighbors. According to the South Bend Tribune, Doug said he'd last seen Jerry the day before, when he met him and some friends for lunch. Witnesses working in the area confirmed seeing Jerry leaving his hardware store when it closed that evening. This told detectives the murder had occurred in a time frame between store closing and around 3.30 the following afternoon, when Doug Boggs found his brother's body. When detectives canvassed Jerry's neighborhood, they got a solid lead. As reported by the South Bend Tribune, Detective Bob Del Valle heard from several neighbors that they had seen two suspicious individuals in the area wearing obvious disguises, including a fake bushy mustache and an oversized baseball cap. It didn't take much effort for investigators to connect Jill Coit with the victim. Jerry was killed days before their civil case was scheduled in court. This detail was no coincidence. It seemed like a strong potential motive. A peek into Jill's past was very incriminating. The string of failed marriages didn't paint her in a flattering light. Detectives also learned Jill had three social security cards, four birth certificates, and at least 15 aliases, according to Oxygen. Jerry's brother, Doug, was apprehensive of Jill from the beginning. He'd hired a private investigator, Stan Lewis, to look into Jill's life because he thought she was hiding something. The Houston PI had dubbed Jill Colorado's Black Widow upon learning about William Coit Jr.'s suspicious death. When detectives spoke with Stan, they recognized glaring similarities between William Coit's homicide and Jerry's murder. They decided to speak with Jill's family to ask about her behavior on the days leading up to the crime. Jill's oldest son, Seth, was ready and willing to speak with police. According to the South Bend Tribune, he told detectives a week before Jerry's body was found, his mother had stayed in a cabin on the B&B property. The next day, she told Seth not to clean the room. It seemed like an odd request at the time, but nothing seemed amiss when he entered the cabin. But on the day Jerry's body was found, Seth noticed a foul smell coming from the cabin. In the sink, he found drops of blood and a stained towel. He told his wife, Julie, about the discovery, 
and they agreed it was unsettling. Two days later, Seth was questioned by detectives. Jill reached out to her son afterward to grill him. As reported by the South Bend Tribune, Seth said she kept asking if they knew when the time of death was. She said she did not have a seven-hour alibi and a three-hour alibi. I was scared. According to the record searchlight, during the time frame Jerry was presumed to be killed, Jill said she and Michael were camping in Fort Collins, 150 miles west of their home in Greeley. But detectives determined even if Jill's alibi was true, it still gave her plenty of time to commit the murder. A warrant was obtained to search Jill's car, and what detectives found was interesting. According to Oxygen, detectives found an assortment of wigs, a map of Mexico, and a stun gun. Though the gun used to shoot the victim was never found, the discovery of a stun gun brought new revelations. When Jerry was found murdered, there had been odd marks on his face. Following a series of tests, investigators were able to conclude they were injuries from being shocked by a stun gun. With the knowledge that Michael Backus was part of Jill's alibi, the investigation pivoted toward him. His co-workers were interviewed to establish what kind of man he was. One person stood out, Troy Giffen. He told detectives that Michael had offered him $7,500 to kill Jerry Boggs, which is about $15,000 today. As reported by the Chicago Tribune, police alleged that Jill and Michael planned to flee to Mexico after the murder. Investigators theorized the pair only returned to Greeley because they ran out of money or wanted to grab their belongings. Both Jill and Michael were arrested on November 23, 1993. Jill's arrest warrant listed all 16 aliases she had used throughout her life. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, Jill and Michael were held on $5 million bond each, both facing charges of first-degree murder and conspiracy. When the news broke that Jerry was killed and his ex-wife was the lead suspect, Steamboat Springs residents were overcome with grief. The small pool of year-round residents meant everyone knew each other. One resident, Lupe Arroyo, had worked on a local political campaign with Jerry. She told the Steamboat pilot, he just got along well with everybody. He talked to everybody. He listened to them. If you'd seen Boggs, you would have seen Steamboat. To her, Jerry represented the spirit of the town with his kind nature and easygoing personality. Everyone who knew Jerry wished he'd never met Jill Coit. Jerry's longtime friend, Thane Gilliland, told the steamboat pilot what a loss this was to the community as a whole, saying he was a real person. There was no pretense about Jerry Boggs. What you saw was what you got. And that's kind of a unique trait you don't find much anymore. He was a bright, personable person. We're all a little poorer for him being gone. It might be difficult to understand how one woman could con and manipulate so many people, especially someone as intelligent as Jerry. One of Jill's ex-husbands, Carl Steely, explained to the Chicago Tribune, if you were to meet her and talk to her, you'd think she's just the greatest person you'd ever met. Why would all these people marry her if she weren't that way? 
Stan Lewis, the private investigator hired to look into Jill's past, offered his own strong opinion of her. He told the Abilene reporter, she's a psychotic, vicious, ruthless black widow. She takes a sadistic, fiendish delight in preying on well-meaning men to facilitate her ultimate goal of furthering her financial welfare. It seems like Jill's deceit culminated in Jerry's murder. But one could argue perhaps Michael Backus was a victim as well. Would he have gone on to kill Jerry if he had never met Jill? Had Jill's ability to manipulate others become so advanced, she could convince someone to commit murder. On the other hand, the fact that Michael had offered his coworker money to act as a hitman showed that he was a willing accomplice. Maybe it doesn't even matter how he landed that role. It wasn't just Michael who'd sought someone else to do the dirty work. According to a warrant referenced by the Chicago Tribune, an unnamed Iowa woman told investigators Jill tried to convince her to kill Jerry by telling her he was a rapist and sexual deviant. Several other individuals came forward with similar allegations. The most condemning testimony would come from Jill's own flesh and blood. A preliminary hearing was delayed. At the last minute, Jill's oldest son, Seth, and his wife, Julie, agreed to provide testimony. In exchange, Seth would be granted immunity from prosecution. At a February 1994 hearing, Colorado Bureau of Investigation agent Susan Kitchen testified that Seth was asked for help in committing the crime. According to AP News, Kitchen said his mother asked him first if he would murder Jerry Boggs, then if he would help her murder Jerry Boggs. Agent Kitchen went on to explain that when Seth refused, Jill asked him for advice about the best way to enter Jerry's home. As quoted by AP News, Seth responded to his mother, if you do anything stupid, wear gloves. If Seth hadn't made the immunity deal, this brief bit of advice, just two words, would have warranted accomplice charges. Jill also asked Seth if he would dump the body if she left it outside his home, but he refused. Seth's testimony would be among the most damaging to Jill's defense at trial but there would be a singular focus on the murder of Jerry Boggs. While sharing the entirety of Jill's marriage record would have painted a broader picture of her character, it wasn't allowed. As reported by the Billings Gazette, at the hearing, District Judge Richard Duchette ruled that no testimony regarding Jill's previous marriages would be admissible at trial. A change of venue motion made by Jill's defense team was also granted due to the media frenzy surrounding the case and how well-known Jerry was in the Steamboat community. This shift delayed the trial for an entire year. Say goodbye to last year's outdated, Disorganize methods of managing your money and say hello to Rocket Money, the better way to hack your finances in 2023. Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill, is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. 
With multiple bills and serious expenses to manage, it's easy to forget about those smaller subscriptions, like those free trials that ended for apps that you don't even use. Over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about. And before Rocket Money, I was one of those people. It's honestly a little embarrassing how quickly I'll sign up for a free trial, use something for a day, and then completely forget about it. But hey, like most people, I have bigger priorities that occupy my mind. I know those small charges add up over time, but I just don't have the capacity to sit and review each individual website and app every month. That's why I love Rocket Money, because all I have to do is sign into my account and everything gets organized in one place for me. Rocket Money helps to quickly and easily identify all of your subscriptions so you don't have to sift through your bank statements. You're able to pick which ones you'd like to unsubscribe from right within the Rocket Money app. It's seriously as easy as a click of a button. Simply find the subscription you don't want, press cancel, and Rocket Money does the rest. No more long hold times with customer service or tedious emailing back and forth. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. Stop wasting your time and stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash murderish. That's rocketmoney.com slash murderish. Rocketmoney.com slash murderish. The six-week murder trial finally began on February 17, 1995, in Grand County District Court. In opening statements, District Attorney Paul McLimons stated Jill Coit manipulated the victim to get what she wanted, as she'd done so many times before. As quoted by the Evansville Courier and Press, the DA stated Jerry was killed because he had a resolute commitment to steer his own course. Defense attorneys accused Route County detectives of botching the investigation and promised they would prove that both defendants hadn't been anywhere near the crime scene. As reported by the Evansville Courier and Press, Jill's attorney, Joseph St. Veltry, said none of the items recovered from the investigation could be tied to the defendants despite a massive, intense, panoramic investigation but prosecutors were intent on exposing Jill's scheming, conniving ways. Jurors needed to understand what kind of a person she truly was and who could demonstrate this better than the defendant herself. As reported by the Daily Sentinel, on the second day of testimony, jurors were played a recorded conversation between Jerry and the defendant. It was recorded without Jill's knowledge on the advice of Jerry's attorney after revealing her pattern of serial bigamy. On the recording, Jill could be heard trying to convince Jerry to remarry her by saying she had given birth to their child, but she hadn't. In fact, Jerry told her on the recording, he knew there was no baby because Jill's parents told him so. According to the Daily Sentinel, Jerry can be heard telling Jill during the conversation, you took more from me than you can ever realize. It was absolutely heart-wrenching for jurors to hear Jerry's voice. The recording was extremely effective in supporting prosecutors' portrayal of Jill 
as a liar and master manipulator. And this crime showed she was also extremely dangerous. On exhibit at the trial was the stun gun retrieved from Jill's car 12 days after Jerry was killed. As reported by the Fort Collins Coloradoan, defense attorneys dismissed this as evidence by arguing the stun gun was never analyzed to see if it had been fired. They also pointed out that fingerprints on the stun gun and its packaging did not match either defendant. Throughout the trial, the defense's angle was insisting the state's case revolved around circumstantial evidence. Without a murder weapon, DNA evidence, and witnesses to the criminal act, it's possible the jury would consider the case against Jill and Michael unsubstantiated. But then, the prosecution's star witness took the stand, Seth Coit, co-owner of the Bed and Breakfast and Jill's first child. He testified that on October 21st, 1993, between 3.30 and 4 p.m., he received a call from his mother. According to the Evansville Courier and Press, she said on the phone, Hey, baby, it's done and it's messy. Seth replied, don't talk to me and hung up the phone. The next afternoon, Jerry's body was found. Seth also told the jury about what he'd found in the cabin that day, including the bloody towels by the sink. Jury members were informed of Seth's immunity deal, but his testimony still held a lot of weight. Statements made to police by other family members and Jill's friends were read in the courtroom. She had made the mistake of telling multiple people about her desire to do away with Jerry, going as far back as a year before the homicide. Another important witness was the coworker Michael Backus had attempted to hire as a hitman, Troy Giffen. As reported by the LA Times, Troy said, he followed up about the offer after the murder happened, and Michael responded, I was hoping you would forget that, and added, this is the only thing that could hang me. In closing arguments, defense attorneys wrote off both Troy and Seth's testimonies as hearsay. They contended both defendants couldn't be considered guilty beyond a reasonable doubt without physical evidence linking them directly to the crime scene. Prosecutors hoped to drive their point home about Jill's character in their closing argument. As quoted by the South Bend Tribune, Carrie St. James stated, her entire life has been one of criminal acts, cons, scams, insurance frauds, and various manipulations of others. This defendant prided herself on manipulation and scams, and she often got away with it. The question lingered, would Jill get away with it yet again? Or would the jury panel hold her and her accomplice accountable for the lives destroyed by Jerry Boggs' murder? On March 17, 1995, Jill Coit and Michael Backus were both found guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. In speaking with the Fort Collins Coloradoan, Jerry's older brother Doug said about Jill, she picked the wrong town, she picked the wrong man, and she picked the wrong family. Their father, Harold, said of the outcome to the Fort Collins Coloradoan, we won't have Jerry back, but at least justice was served. In a May 25th sentencing hearing, both Jill and Michael 
were sentenced to life in prison without parole and an additional consecutive 48-year sentence for the conspiracy charge. The case itself had generated so much international media attention that the judge took a preemptive measure. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, Judge Duchette levied a $1 million fine against both defendants to dissuade them from profiting from their crime through book or film deals. Jill was initially sent to the state prison in Cannon City, but was transferred to the Denver Women's Correctional Facility in October of 2001. Michael Backus is carrying out his sentence at the Lyman Correctional Facility. It seems Jill learned nothing from her conviction. As reported by the Steamboat Pilot, in both May and December of 1998, she was caught creating marriage matchmaking websites for inmates. The Colorado Women's Correctional Institute shut down the pages before she could entrap any additional victims. In September of 2003, Michael Backus appeared in a Route County courtroom insisting on his innocence and filing a motion for a retrial. His motion was denied. Both Jill and Michael filed several appeals, but their sentences were upheld, making it very likely they'll never see a day of freedom again. While Jill has never been charged for her suspected role in the death of William Coit Jr., Jerry Boggs' loved ones find solace in knowing that his two killers will never be freed. The community of Steamboat Springs still mourns the loss of Jerry with fond remembrance. An obituary published in the Steamboat Pilot reads, his love of his friends and family was unconditional and he was everyone's Uncle Jerry. After more than 60 years of business, Doug Boggs shut the doors to Boggs Hardware for the last time in 2003. Generations of Steamboat Springs residents warmly remember the store and smile at the memory of Jerry greeting them from behind the counter. Joanna Dotter, a Steamboat Pilot writer who covered the case, said to the Steamboat Pilot in 2020, People in Steamboat will always have something that sets them apart from others who hear of this case. We can't help but grieve for a good family that never deserved this. With the murder of Jerry Boggs, all of us lost another piece of this community's innocence. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Don't forget to check out my new Patreon perks. Murderish Behind the Mic Patreon membership is a great option for those who've listened to every episode of Murderish and want access to bonus episodes or those who want to listen to the podcast with no ads. To sign up for Murderish Behind the Mic and get access to all of the exclusive perks, visit Murderish.com or go to Patreon.com and search for Murderish there. I want to say a huge thank you to Molly and Stacy W for joining Murderish Behind the Mic. Thank you both so much. I'm really looking forward to interacting with you on Patreon. For those who don't know, I host another true crime podcast called Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast follows my investigation of a woman I met a few years ago, a woman who turned out to be a prolific scam artist. It's a wild story that even has ties to the Michael Jackson scandal. You can subscribe to Dirty Money Moves wherever you're listening right now. There are a bunch of episodes for you to binge right now. 
You guys, do me the biggest favor and tell your friends about Murderish or leave the show a positive rating and review in any podcast app. You can also show your support by wearing a Murderish t-shirt or a hat while you're out and about. And trust me, it's a great conversation starter. Go to Murderish.com to buy t-shirts, bags, coffee mugs, and so much more. If you want to get to know me a little better and stay up to date with all things going on with the podcast, make sure to follow Murderish on Instagram and TikTok at Murderish Podcast. Murderish sound design and audio editing is done by Pod Machine with oversight by Emily Crane of Cloud10 Media. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. Before we close out this episode, I want to make you all aware of a missing persons case. Three-year-old Ariana Fitz has been missing since April 5th of 2016. According to the FBI database, the two-foot African-American toddler with black hair and brown eyes was last seen in Oakland, California in January or February of 2016. Ariana's mother, Nicole Fitz, was found murdered and buried in a public park in San Francisco. But investigators believe Ariana wasn't with her when the crime occurred. Born in 2013, Ariana would be nine years old now. Any information regarding the disappearance of Ariana Fitz can be reported to your local FBI office or the nearest American embassy or consulate. I'll also leave a link to the FBI website in the show notes for this episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.